This week, the comic guys explain the history of DC, part four. So, welcome back, everyone. We're on the fourth episode of our history of DC comics. And where we'll be starting off this time is with DC recruiting uh, one of the most important comic creators of the 80s and one of the most influential of all time, Alan Moore. So, Darren? Absolutely. So, like we said at the end of the last episode, DC was had, had kind of found itself freed from the necessity to actually make money with everything that they did. Warner Brothers saw them as a factory, as a farm for intellectual property at that point. And so the individual comics, it was less of a big deal. I'm not going to say it was unimportant. They didn't want to lose money. But it was they were willing to try and experiment because they knew that uh, they did not have to, you know, they weren't, they weren't going to miss a paycheck or something if they did not have a good sales week. Right. They were, you know, like part of this much larger organization that was looking to grow these properties and make them more valuable outside of just the week to week, month to month publication of comic books. And so with this freedom, they started kind of looking for new, interesting, creative people to come on board. The other advantage they had, of course, is that they were, you know, very clearly number two to Marvel when it came to sales at this point. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, the X-Men, the Claremont era X-Men are at the absolute kind of, you know, height of their power. And so Marvel on the newsstands, Marvel on the stores, the retail stores was way out in front of DC. Um, and then there was, you know, DC was in second and then way back behind DC are a bunch of independent publishers, uh, you know, trying to scrape out a living there for this. So when DC decided to start looking for new talent, one of the first places they looked at was England. England had a thriving independent scene at the time and had a lot of really interesting work being done in their magazines for it, in magazines like Warrior and 2000 AD and that sort of thing. And so the, uh, the, the New York publishers were definitely aware of the major titles, at least, that were going on in England, how interesting the stuff that was going on there. This is the time when Warrior is doing Judge Dredd. This is when uh, Marvel UK has its entire line of stuff going on where they're doing uh, Captain Britain and a bunch of other uh, titles over there. This is when Doctor Who comics are at the, you know, kind of like height of their creative power. And so DC kind of was looking at, you know, hey, who are the hot young people over there? Who can we come, who can we recruit to come over to us? And they had had a fair amount of success with a couple of artists at that point from England, one of whom was Brian Boland. And Brian Boland, I think, is the first person to recommend to DC that they should talk to Alan Moore, because Moore had uh, kind of made his debut over there in 8081, was, you know, pretty young guy and was definitely considered one of the most interesting writers currently working in England. And so Len Wein was the editor uh, for what was left of kind of like the horror titles at DC, the small handful of them that they had left, which included basically Swamp Thing, House of Mystery, that kind of thing, contacted Alan Moore and basically recruited him to do Swamp Thing which was a title that had been around for more than a decade at that point, didn't really sell terribly well, was not a you know very uh, important or interesting title, it was always kind of on the verge of being canceled, and recruited him to do 
basically whatever he wanted with the character. And Alan Moore, you know, famously did the anatomy lesson as his first story for Swamp Thing and kind of, you know, changed the face of comics at that point. He was working with uh, Bissett and Tottleben, some, you know, the outstanding artists who had been on the series a little bit before him, but they blended very well and Moore started doing these fabulous, very kind of deconstructing, you know, the, the entire concept of the character and a new form, a new style of, of serial comic book storytelling. And that pretty quickly got a whole lot of people excited about Moore's stuff in particular and about England in general. Over the next couple of years, Karen Berger, who was Len Wein's assistant editor at DC at that time, is a young woman, she's uh, 25, real go-getter, very, very smart, you know, skilled editor, was basically kind of assigned, you know, maybe two years into their run of working with Moore to say, you know what, go find us more Alan Moores, right? This is going to be your job. We're going to send you uh, to London with the DC credit card and, you know, find and meet as many interesting artists and writers and whatever, you know, people in the comic business over there, take them all to dinner and, you know, see what it takes to actually sign them. And so for basically two extremely you know, almost debauched weekends, right, of like partying in London with, uh, you know, the entire creative crews of 2000 AD and Warrior, et cetera, et cetera. In the course of two weekends, Berger came home with like contact info and like the beginnings of contracts with Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Dave McKeon, Pete Milligan, Jamie Delano. I mean, just a, a an all-star cast of some of the most talented uh, people in comics at the time. And all of them were used to working for almost nothing, you know, comparatively, as far as, uh, as, far as the, the money that they were making in London for this, the rates that DC was offering to them, uh, along with their, you know, royalty setup that we had talked about at the end of the last episode, made DC a very, a, a well sought after position for them. Yeah, very attractive for, you know, making tons more exactly um that's that's a real list of uh names all people who would go on to be right exactly i mean once again that's those those two weeks basically you know changed the face of comics right that you know like by bringing them all over you know almost like i said almost at once so that you know now dc has this operation they've got uh this large collection of people who are doing very interesting Horror is, doesn't really kind of like completely describe everything that they were doing, but most everything that they were doing was at least weird, right? If it's, you know, if it wasn't necessarily specifically scary, it was unusual, certainly. And so we have this collection of titles that Berger herself kind of like found herself being in charge of. And relatively quickly, it became clear that, you know, they, there, was a, there was an interconnection between them and that if you were going to be a fan of one of them, eventually you'd be interested in the others. Right. Uh, you know, Hellblazer obviously was kind of a spin off of Swamp Thing. And then you had other titles that uh, were going on. You had the Doom Patrol and these other kind of like strange deconstructed superhero type titles, uh, Kid Eternity, that sort of thing. And so Berger wound up basically in charge of her own kind of like little mini imprint within DC of like the British writers and artists and that crowd that she was, uh, you know, kind of managing herself. And eventually, they would formalize that, and that imprint would become Vertigo. 
But before that happens, there's a couple other things that, that uh, DC is doing. These are all like the precursors to like what we would later on call Vertigo. Right, right? exactly. Yeah, stuff. most of those most of those early titles that would wind up getting folded in under the Vertigo uh, umbrella, several of them started before Vertigo really existed, right? They were still part of the main line. Yeah, they didn't just snap their fingers and now we're doing, you know, experimental cool stuff, new stuff. Right. They slowly ramped up. Right, exactly. Into a whole line. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Neil Gaiman had to do Black Orchid and that sort of thing before he would do, you know, before he would start with Sandman, right? I mean, that was not something you could do. Yeah. You, you couldn't start with Sandman, right? Like, you had to kind of, like, show that you could handle a regular title first. Right. Around this same time, of course, Marvel over on kind of the more mainstream side of DC, Marv Wolfman has been pressing uh, DC to do this large crossover series because he and George Perez and Len Wein, again, uh, you know, up in editorial, believe that part of the problem with their mainstream line is that it's too complicated. It's too hard for new readers, for young new readers to come in and understand what's going on. There's too many Earths. There's too many different versions of different characters running around. Um, it seems almost kind of comical today when you consider the number of like alternate versions of characters that we pretty much have established that uh, readers and fans are willing to put up with, you know, in a world that's got about 1,000 different Batmans running around in it right now. Yeah. At the time, in 1983, 1984, it was considered strange and weird, and it was a detriment to the, you know, to the titles. That's actually an uh, opinion that was coming up a couple of years ago when they were talking about not wanting to have uh, Batman or Superman on TV shows because they didn't want people to get confused about, you know, which which one was the real Batman or right. the real Superman. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that it was they would somehow diminish one to have the other one, right? That like yep. having Batman on TV meant that Batman wasn't as valuable in the movies, which, you know, right. seems preposterous on the face of it, but it was a very strongly held belief for, you know, and to a certain extent still is today. Uh, that's why we don't have a regular everyday Batman TV series, but we do have Gotham and, you know, Batwoman and everything else. Right. But anyway, so we're, we're faced with this, you know, the, this debate over whether this is even a problem, right? There are some writers and editors who believe that this is the case. And then on top of that, you have Marvel, and we'll eventually get around to doing Marvel's history as well. But at this point is when Marvel does a massive toy deal, basically, that needs a comic book to support it, right? They've got a bunch of little plastic, you know, figure toys for this, and the line that is supporting it is a uh, nine-month-long limited series called Secret Wars. And Secret Wars will go over the course of an entire summer, and it will team up a whole bunch of superheroes and send them off to a different planet to fight, uh, you know, a whole bunch of supervillains. And, uh, you know, characters will change their costumes. Characters will, you know, have, like, big events that will, like, happen and tie into this. And Secret Wars sells tremendously well. The Secret Wars toy line sells tremendously well. And once again, Marvel is kind of like way out in front as far as like actual cash generated. So DC is like, well, we should also do a thing like that. We should also have like a big crossover summer event. And we will have, you know, all of our characters, it'll have all of our characters will appear in it. All of our different comics will tie into it. And it will be one big story for the plot. Let's use this thing that Marv Wolfman has been you know, complaining about basically. Let's have the point of the story be that we're going to collapse all of these different timelines, all of these alternate Earths into one Earth, 
and it will have one continuing history that goes back, you know, to forever. So the Justice Society will have been around during World War II, and then we'll have, you know, the modern heroes today. They will all have been on the same planet the whole time. We're just going to tie all of this stuff together and make one big story out of it. And that, of course, is the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And we've talked about this a couple of times uh, uh, in other episodes. In our Supergirl episode, right, especially. Exactly. That, that what this does is unfortunately kind of muck with, in, in its efforts to explain uh, DC history and combine it into one big event, they almost created more problems than they solved, right? Because uh, this is tied to, at the same time that they're doing Crisis, they're, they're, they're spinning off and getting their new material that's coming out on the far side of Crisis at the end of it is this whole kind of rebooted universe that's starting over as far as uh, uh, history goes. And so they, uh, you know, they have a, they have a bunch of uh, uh, kind of like big event time stories that happen immediately after crisis. And one of them is John Byrne taking over Superman. And when John Byrne comes in to say, to take over Superman, he says, uh, you know, one of my, Things that I that I you know one of my uh, uh, unreasonable demands for this is Superman's the only one from Krypton, and he doesn't become Superman until he's a grown up, until he travels off to Metropolis and gets a job at the Daily Planet. So there was never a Superboy. Well, if there was never a Superboy, then who started the Legion of Superheroes, right? If there was never a Supergirl, you know, like what's with all these stories with her in the back? Though, how did those, how did they actually go? You know, like what is in fact actually part of this history and what isn't. Those kind of problems wound up confusing DC fans much more, I think, than you know, than, than the number of parallel Earths ever did. Uh, regardless, Crisis uh, made a lot of money and was kind of like the touching off point for a lot of big events at DC. Crisis was so successful that they had the ability to. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, launch all of these events. Byrne doing Superman was one of them. Even bigger than that, not only had they stolen uh, Byrne away from Marvel, they also, at least temporarily, stole Frank Miller away from Marvel. And Frank Miller had become, you know, like one of the, the hot young writer artists uh, doing Daredevil uh, over at Marvel uh, and where he created Elektra and then killed Elektra in this, you know, like enormous event over there. Uh, but the character he always wanted to do, the character he really wanted to, uh, you know, to do a story about was Batman. And when DC found out about that, they basically dangled a bunch of money in front of him. And he came over to do uh, his definitive Batman story, which was, of course, the Dark Knight. Uh, and that, once again, was a huge uh, uh, event for DC. It brought a lot of publicity. Uh, it sold tremendously well, um, but it kind of like gave them a certain amount of like legitimacy, right? Like grownups were reading this. There are articles about it in the New York Times. This is a, you know, this is a big event. This is a serious literary event that has just happened here. Right around the same time is when uh, Moore has pitched uh, Watchmen. And we've got an entire other episode about Watchmen that you can go check out. But this also happens yep. in the immediate like year two year and a half after crisis is when Watchmen comes out. Uh, and once again, is an enormous event that gets a surprising amount of publicity and press brought to DC 
which is still, you know, second uh, in the sales groups, right? But it's it's certainly second, but the critics love it, right? Like, so, you know, they, they may be second place, but they're the ones getting all the great reviews. They're the ones whose comics are being touted in major newspapers and, uh, you know, wherever as being for adults uh, on a level that uh, comics had not before. So this is all great as far as, you know, DC's corporate masters are concerned, right? They're not, you know, whether or not uh, the, the comics themselves make money remains not terribly interesting, but one of their comics getting a favorable review in, you know, Publishers Weekly or the New York Times review of books, that's great. That is, you know, publicity that you can't pay for, you know. Um, around this time, of course, is when uh, Warner Brothers uh, as a corporation merges with Time Incorporated, with the Time Magazine, basically, and becomes Time Warner Brothers, uh, Time Warner uh, as, a, as a corporation. Uh, and this is a time where, you know, DC is suddenly, uh, like I said, they're still figuring out what to do with their intellectual property, with how to like make money doing these other things, right? We, we talked about the Superman movies and the various TV shows, the next round of those begins with Time Warner's money. And Time Warner's money is spent in 1989 on the Tim Burton Batman movie. And again, you know, the, the, the premise of how they sell this is, you know, yeah, Batman, you thought Batman was for kids. Well, Dark Knight changed your mind about that. Dark Knight is totally, you know, has proven that Batman is for grownups. And to prove that or to carry that forward, we're going to make a full-on, quote-unquote, grown-up Batman movie. And it's going to have Jack Nicholson in it. And it's going to have Michael Keaton in it. It's going to have serious stars, serious money, a serious director. Prince is going to do an entire goddamn album uh, that will be the you know music uh, for this. This is an event you know, on a scale and a level of seriousness that uh, no comic book company had had before. Uh, and while it takes a few years to kind of like reverberate through the Hollywood system, it's really the Burton Batman movie is kind of like the beginning of the modern era of superhero movies, of, of kind of like the transition to a new age where the TV and movie versions of these characters are the real ones, are the important ones, right? Um, and yeah. so that kind of gets followed up by uh, I mean, you know, Batman movie gets three sequels of, you know, rapidly right. decreasing quality, basically. But uh, the second one was the first movie I ever saw in theaters. Is it really? Yeah. When I was like three, my bound took me to see that, which is like, you know, poor choice <laughs> on her part. Um, <laughs> I actually saw the, the, the 1980, the original Batman movie. I saw that when it debuted at Man's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And there was oh, a wow. huge event. There was, you know, spotlights and celebrities and all kind of stuff and a red carpet and everything. There was the first time I'd ever gone to a red carpet event because I was living in Hollywood that summer. Or I was working at a hardware store there. It's not like I was making any money. But uh, anyway, so Batman has this, you know, these follow-up successes. Uh, the, you know, the second movie is pretty good and makes some money. The third and fourth ones are kind of like famously bombs, but whatever. But that also leads to uh the batman animated series also comes out in 92 uh which is then kind of like followed so now you've got this whole line of uh the you know the 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 Dini, uh you know collection of of shows uh that kind of follow 
Batman the Animated Series. There's, then there's the Superman series and the Justice League series and everything yeah. else that's all kind of like started by that. Um, Lois and yeah. Clark. Feeney continues to be my favorite. Yeah. Lo uh, Batman writer. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Lois and Clark on mainstream TV, on regular live action television for this, starts in 93, right? Now that like Warner, Time Warner mm -hmm. has become this, you know, like kind of major uh, uh, corporation with its, you know, kind of with, with tentacles everywhere in pop culture at that point, that's DC can be anywhere and it can do anything. It is pretty much unlimited uh, in, in what it can do. Uh, the 90s aren't a great time for the mainstream stuff that they're doing because they keep trying to redo crisis, right? You have all of the crisis, big summer crossovers happen, uh, kind of like set a, a stage for that. And some of them are good and most of them really aren't. And most of them are not kind of like the kind of stories that are worth this much time and energy. Uh, you know, Legends was good. Uh, Invasion, not very good. The whatever the Manhunter one was for it, that was a nightmare. Uh, yeah, this is kind of this is where all that started. I mean, this is still going yeah. today. The big summer events in uh, that comics put out every year, and most of them are you know under deliver. Exactly very, right. They they become the, something that the fan base kind of tends to dread almost more than they're you know like is it going to be good this time because it's going to happen. They can't not do it right. Um, yep. But they, it, they definitely, the, the diminishing returns for each one that happen uh, definitely kind of like lead to a sense of like audience fatigue with these. It's like events now become kind of like replace too much of the just day-to-day -day operation of running their comics, right? Like you can't follow a comic for an extended period of time without the story being interfered with or interrupted by the latest big crossover that is happening. You enjoying this comic? All right, well now buy six other ones. Um, those are always the worst. Where you have to buy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I, and if you were enjoying the plot that was happening up until <laughs> this point, well, we're going to take you know we're going to put it away for three months so that we can do this big crossover. In the worst cases, we're also still going to seed some of that plot into the event plot, so you still have to read it for like one page <laughs> all the way through, or else you won't get it when we start right. back up. Exactly. <laughs> And further, not only that, we're, we're still dissatisfied with the way Crisis fixed the universe, which means that every so often we've got to right. do another one, another version of this, and try to rebuild the universe yet another time. Which means now you've got to figure out yet again which you know what your character is, and what parts of his backstory are still true, right? Like what things, what things yeah. are, are still the case about it. zero power. All right, let's keep let's. Let's keep all the backstories uh, together this time. Oh no, I dropped Hawkman again. Uh, I dropped. <laughs> I dropped Hawkman on him. Put some Egyptian on him. And also, let's make Batman even younger, over and over again, <laughs> so that it. But keep all of the Robins, so it becomes. Right. Like he basically changes Robins every six months, and it starts to become like a child endangerment <laughs> program. Of wait a minute, how how is this? How does anybody let him keep doing this? But the good news, the good things that happen from this is now DC is considered valuable enough and has become such a successful IP farm for them that they can now start doing some really interesting products. They can do some uh, Vertigo itself becomes an imprint with a separate, you know, title line sometime in the early 90s, right? Like it has its own logo and its own, you know, kind of like publishing philosophy. And it's very obvious what kind of titles go there. 
right? It's the, you know, all the new material that, that, that is there. Uh, they do a new creator-owned run of stuff called Piranha Press. Uh, they acquire uh, the MLJ Archie characters and create the Impact line. I mean, a bunch of stuff is going on. They acquire Milestone, which is the uh, African-American uh, superhero publishing line and publish those. They acquire Wildstorm, which winds up with them going back into business with uh, Alan Moore because uh, Wildstorm was one of the titles or was the publisher of America's Best Comics, which was in the, the indie titles that Moore was doing once he and DC had kind of had their, you know, their, their breakup for this. DC wound up acquiring once again, uh, you know, the corporate masters of what Alan Moore was doing. And he made, to his credit, one more effort to try to get along with them, uh, which failed again. Uh, you know, within a year, he was mad at them again and basically walked away and uh, got canceled the entire line of, the, of America's Best, which was a shame because those were good titles. They, you know, over the course of the now, you know, through the 90s into the 2000s, we now have reached uh, a point where they're bringing in a lot of other outside stuff. They're acquiring outside stuff. And now they have reached the point where they are a challenge to Marvel in size. Marvel kind of like went through some tough times in the 90s financially uh, and wound up kind of like cutting its line back. Uh, and so by 95, 96, it was no longer obvious which of them was actually the bigger publisher, right? Marvel had come back, DC had pushed forward, and now they were kind of like neck and neck in size. Um, and then, of course, during all this run, there are a few pushes from third-party publishers, right? Like Image has its kind of like its big breakthrough at that point for this and actually kind of challenges them on the, the monthly sales charts for it. And then, you know, other ones come in after that. Um, right. But uh, DC does uh, uh, partnerships with a bunch of like well-regarded, well-known artists and publishers uh, through this. They start reprinting Will Eisner's stuff through Kitchen Sink. Um, Wendy and Richard Peeney, uh, their publishing stuff uh, gets picked up by DC and is being managed by it. They take a second try at Archie after Impact didn't work with the Red Circle stuff. Uh, uh, you know, none of that really... I mean, once again, all of the... Oh, and CMX, the manga series, becomes a big chunk of what they're doing. Um, uh, once again, starting in the uh, mid 2000s, somewhere around 2005. Uh, Jeanette Kahn, as the manager of all of this, having basically kind of, you know, like presided over all of this happening uh, for the last 20, spent 26 years as the publisher, finally steps down in 2002 uh, and goes into the movie making business, having like built her, you know, name and reputation by basically turning DC into this you know, gigantic IP factory for this. She goes off to uh, actually produce movies and she's made several really well-known ones for it. Gran Torino with uh, Clint Eastwood. She was one of the producers of example. So she's kind of mm. built a whole new career over in Hollywood. So DC, uh, you know, keeps doing the stuff, uh, you know, doing its regular reboots. The mainstream line is, is uh, you know, kind of awkward. Like I said, you have events like 50, the new 52 infinite crisis, uh, but the IP factory keeps churning out cash, keeps churning out new shows, right? After uh, Lois and Clark is canceled, it's only a couple of years before we've got Smallville, right? 
when the Batman line right. of movies kind of like runs out under, uh, you know, the uh, John Peters and his uh, operation there, then we just get a new line of them starts in 2005 with the new Batman, uh, right, with the Christian Bale Batman. Um, and that just keeps kind of, you know, keeps churning, right? Like just that, that, that is now a thing that has built up so much momentum that you couldn't possibly stop it if you wanted to, right? And that, you know, just keeps moving into the, into the present day. DC changes its uh, internal operations starting in 2009 um, with uh, Khan out for this. Diane Nelson becomes the new publisher in 2009 with Paul Levitz, who had been one of the primary creators of in the 70s and 80s for DC, has been the you know sort of legendary writer scripter for Legion of Superheroes as kind of like her advisor because she's not from the comics business, whereas Levitt's been in comics right. business for 40 years at that point. Um, basically, you know, kind of like takes over as her, as her uh, VP and, uh, you know, second in command. Um, and then in 2010, DC Entertainment, now the entertainment, you know, company for this, uh, named new publishers, uh, Jim Lee, the artist, uh, Dan Didio, uh, who was also an artist for this, as the co-publishers, for the company with Nelson kind of like taking a step up into upper management and Jeff Johns as the chief creative officer. And that uh, arrangement has largely stood for the last decade, though Didio is no longer there for it, but Johns and Lee both have uh, kind of like remained there. And I think Johns is out now too, actually. I think Johns stepped down in like three years ago. Yeah, John's uh, John served from 2010 to 2016. Jim Lee is the current okay. co-publisher. Got it. Good to know. Okay. During that time, of course, is also the move, right? Like DC moves its corporate offices from New York City, where they have always been, which has been the traditional home of comic book publishing. They, uh, you know, move out to Los Angeles because that makes way more sense for the kind of business that they're in, right? Once again, the actual like publishing of comics, not the important part of this anymore. Uh, right. So, uh, let's see here. In the first few movies that so, they do, obviously, the first few uh, post Batman movies in kind of like the modern era uh, are not well received, shall we say, or are, are controversially. Certainly, there are plenty of people out there who love the Zack Snyder films, and it's not like they lost money on any of them. But once again, there's, you know, a number of people were disappointed creatively. Uh, with his takes on Superman and his version of Watchmen, etc., uh, Walter Mata wound up taking over uh, the um, offices there, and that's when AT and T basically took over Warner. Warner didn't change much in its kind of like corporate structure at that point. They basically just kind of like sold the overarching operation, became taken over by AT and T. Uh, and so we have some, because AT&T is public, we can talk about some of the money that's actually been generated from this. If you look at uh, 2019, the last complete year for this, Warner Brothers for uh, AT&T, for Warner Media, generated $14.4 billion in revenue. That's 43% of all of Warner Media's revenue and 8% of all of AT&T's revenue. Right, like these, you know, sizable numbers. Uh, you can't yeah. really break. They don't break down DC separately 
to see what portion of that is DC. But they have in their uh, paperwork, it says that uh, they have the what Warner calls its games and other segment. So it would be DC's comics and their video games. Another uh, studio and Warner Brothers Interactive. Right, all yeah. that stuff. Um, plus all of the not TV and film related subsidiary stuff, right? Like every t-shirt, every jar of peanut butter, every set of, you know, bed sheets or whatever with Superman on them, that kind of thing. That all goes under the games and other segment, right? That by itself last year was $2 billion. Almost all of which is, uh, is, you know, from DC. So if you kind of like break that out, uh, that the comics in, you know, the percentage of the, of that, that is probably generated by DC's comics is probably at best 300 million, right? Which is once again, a tiny fraction of all of the money of AT&T or even all of the money of Warner Media, right? If you're talking about something that's, you know, generating uh, 35 billion, you know, for Warner, for Warner Media for this, 300 million, that's, you know, 1% right? Like 1% of their business came from DC publishing itself from all of the books, all of the comics, all of the graphic, et cetera, et cetera, was 1% of Warner Media's operation, let alone of AT&T. Right. Um, yeah, well, the, the comics have just become, and, but like this year, they're going to put out Wonder Woman and that's going to make Right, they've done, yeah, it's a DC million. Entertainment at this point. Millions. We were counting; it's, right. they've made yeah. eighteen movies to this point, yeah. most of which have been financially successful. A few of which were commercially successful. I mean, the last few uh, were actually pretty strong. Wonder Woman was a, both a you know commercial and critical success. Uh, pretty much everybody liked Shazam. Pretty much everybody liked yeah. Aquaman. You know, so Aquaman was hilarious. Yeah, these, yeah. Were, these were decent films, and there's three more. Uh, you know, in theory, coming out this year, if the you know the wind up, if the movie business ever wind up winds up kind of recovering from uh, you know the current virus situation, the current uh, you know quarantine yeah. world, uh, from the and the Snyder Cut coming it's to exactly HBO. right. Yeah. yeah, are you so? Where do you where do you fall on this? Are you Snyder? Uh, I can't wait to see it so that when it's bad, everyone will shut up. Oh, you up. know that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I'll have more ammo to tell okay, them to shut fair. up. All right. <laughs> like, I just, I can't imagine that it's going to be, like, A, it, it, it never existed. The whole, that, that whole thing about how the Snyder Cut exists and we've seen it and it's way better than what was out there. That's where, that's, that was bullshit. Right. Like, it did not exist because they're having to spend another like several million dollars to get it ready to right. be shown. And they're not doing reshoots. And I don't see how you can fix certain parts of that movie without reshoots. Makes sense to me. Right. Like, yeah. The, I don't know. Where are you at with it? What do you think? About uh, I mean, justice league was such a mess to start out with. It's yeah. it wrong headed to begin with. I think Josh Whedon probably did the best he could with what he had. Uh, but I can't imagine that Snyder is going to be able to improve on that in any way for this based on, you know, my experience with Zack Snyder movies to this point. So it was better than it's than the previous one, Superman, Batman, at least in my opinion, but that's a really low bar to get over. But yeah, 
<laughs> it's damning with like, false praise, that, I know. That's but, putting the bar on the ground and then just stepping over it. But, okay, sure. Like, yeah. Um, but anyway, that, yeah, I can't imagine. Anyway, like, that pretty much brings us up to date uh, with uh, DC now that we kind of have laid this groundwork. Uh, you know, I hope that people will be able to look back at these episodes of the history of DC uh, to get, you know, to fill in information when we start making kind of like more specific references in the future uh, to some of the things that's going on. They'll have some context to actually put them in. Um, and we'll eventually, you know, we plan to do uh, similar histories for Marvel and for a bunch of the other interesting smaller publishers over the history uh, of, uh, of comic books over the last century. So. Absolutely. All right, well, um, with that being the end of DC, that's the end of this episode and of this series of episodes. So thank you for uh, listening. I've been Steve Tasker, and this has been Darren Watts. Thanks for coming by. See you all next time.